Welcome to the Horizon Search Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Warren Jonas, CEO and co-founder of Wild and Stone. Warren has successfully led the business from a mere concept in 2018 to a global force that sells over 100 stylish and practical alternatives to single-use plastics to over 100,000 customers. In parallel, he leverages his diverse experience to mentor and coach aspiring leaders and entrepreneurs as part of Jonas Partners and Co. As a virgin startup mentor, he provides invaluable guidance to founders scaling their businesses. Furthermore, as the CEO and co-founder of Robert Lloyd Limited, he applies his business acumen to the property market, focusing on buy-to-let properties and Airbnb rentals. We will discuss his mesmerizing career and unlock valuable insights for entrepreneurs at all stages. I'll now let him share a bit about his background in his own words. Hey, David. It's lovely to see you today. I'm Warren Jonas, and I am the CEO of several firms. I'm an entrepreneur, and I love being busy with with life. So I run a property company, I run an Ecolux business, and I'm a consultant. That sounds like a lot. How do you balance your time between each of those endeavors? You know what? People always ask us and say, it sounds a lot. When I was in my corporate role, I was way busier. So I've actually got a really good life balance. And another thing that I didn't say is I've got three kids. So I'm able to balance all of that because I love it and also because I'm really organized on how I structure my world. So they all complement and fill different gaps of, of what I need to achieve in a week. I see. So looking at Wild and Stone, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Wild and Stone, we created it about five years ago. My wife and I were were talking, we were in the bathroom brushing our kids' teeth and we were like, you know, there was a lot going on in the world. The weather was crazy and we were looking at each other thinking, do you know what? Plastic in the home is such a problem and we part of the problem. So we were chuckling going like, we've got to stop this. Like it's so easy to buy something and, you know, today you order it and it arrives in a few hours and you use it once and you throw it away. And we were like this is a real bad problem. What can we do? And so she went away and was like, okay, I'm going to find a better solution. And she couldn't find one. So she was like, okay, what do we do? And and so I said, well, let's create a company. Let's go solve the problem for ourselves. And so we went off and created some toothbrushes as a prototype. And that's where Wild and Stone was born. The vision of the company is to create products that make the world a healthier planet. And our mission is to remove single-use items from the home. So that was five years ago. We had one product, and now we have 110 products that we sell globally. Impressive. Could you tell me about the name? How did you arrive at that? Yeah, so while we spent a lot of time on what we wanted the brand to feel like and look like, and so I did three years of my career in marketing, so I sort of took that marketing background. And wild as in wild animals, nature, you know, the elements of the earth, and stone being the foundation of, of the earth, the rocks, nature, you know, uh, foundational. So that's where the name comes from, wild and stone being all about nature. I see. Could you talk a little bit about your expansion from one product to having kind of global reach with over 100 products? Yeah, I think as we evolved, we knew that we just didn't want to be known as the toothbrush firm. We wanted to be known as an Ecolux provider that gave customers choice. And so we really wanted to broaden broaden the options for consumers. And so we, we would walk around the house saying, like, can we find a better solution to all the different products that we use on a day-to-day basis? And so that's really where the rest of our range came from. So sort of an example of something we do is like a beeswax wrap rather than cling form. 
you know, reusable razors rather than throwaway razors, dishcloths and hand towels that are made from organic cotton rather than your traditional paper towel that people often use and throw in the bin. So anything that we could find that we felt was a good solution that we could put against our brand, manufactured in a really sustainable way, was how we've added additional elements. We've lucky as well, we found some really good manufacturers that that fit our culture and values that we really want to. And so that's allowed us to also expand out into new new ranges. Okay. I imagine you started in the UK, European region. Like what advice would you give to someone expanding outside of their region in terms of messaging and culture? Yeah, I think the starting point, I think you've got to spend a lot of time thinking about what your brand means, what you want it to feel like, because I think you can think about the brand at the start, hopefully it echoes around the different regions. There's a lot of global cultures that are slightly different, but if you can keep your core similar and your, your values similar, then you can take that around the world. So we were able to take that piece and you know, think of the, of the, the UK, the British culture and the American culture, there's similarities there, right? And even Europe, we're able to get into the European market, the UK market and, and American market because the fields there, there's obviously language complexity within Europe, but English is quite a, a well-used language around Europe as well. Okay. So say true to your brand and yes. uh, the rest it takes care of itself. Yeah. Stay true to the brand at the start. And then I would say also when you're looking at launching into new markets is, you know, keep it simple. I think you can you can overcomplicate things. What we did is we took our top sellers in the UK market and we use that as vehicles into new regions. And so you you put a foot in the door, see how it all works, understand how to how to scale it from there, and then you can add additional components. We today still don't have our full range in every single region, even though we do 110 products now. The majority of that is in, in the UK markets and our top sellers are in different regions just because, you know, we want to keep our complexity down. Okay. Speaking of complexity, you work with manufacturers. How do you find your manufacturers? Like word of mouth, past experience, and are all your products made from one manufacturer or multiple manufacturers distributed around the world? I'm smiling. And so the reason being is like finding a manufacturer is the dark art of products, right? If you can find a good manufacturer and hold on to them forever, because that's really at the key. And we've been through some some bad manufacturing. And I'll give you a, a funny example is we wanted to make a cup. And so we wanted to make a coffee cup and we went through loads of testing of these prototypes. And I kept looking at the cup going, this looks really similar to an, a competitor's cup. And we even, we asked the manufacturer and they're like, yeah, it's, it's a copy. And we're like, well, that doesn't work. You can't copy someone else's product. You have to have uniqueness in what we do. So you need to spend a lot of time finding suppliers. And we're lucky enough, we have the way that the different markets work is we have someone in region within China who basically acts as a conduit between manufacturing groups and, and us. So that's been really useful because it's not like we just connected to the factory. We connected to a group that helps us connect into different factories so we can have a longer chain. We can diversify manufacturing if required. And then we went through multiple suppliers within the Indian market, right? So we went through, tested a few samples. And then recently, over the last sort of year and a half, we found a really amazing supplier who has the right eco-credentials, ethos, and, and sustainability elements that we feel are important. And now what we're doing is we're working on expanding the range. You know, we're doing 50,000, 60,000 units of stock with some some of our manufacturing providers. So now that we've got them, we can add different products. And a good example is like we do hair tires that are, that are made from organic rubber. And so we now are able to add in different colors of hair tires using the one manufacturer. Okay. And I imagine you go through a few like 
types of like prototypes, different iterations of products as you test them and make little tweaks here and there. What's like the the longest time that you've spent trying to really hone in on one product? Well, the truth is, is that we have a group of co-founders. One of the co-founders is my wife and she is the product leader. And she's the perfect person because she looks at every different angle of every product. So I'm on the front end when it's arrived. I'm then, you know, communicating to market, looking at who we're selling it through. But she really spends ages on the products trying to work out how, how it looks, how it feels, what it's made from and prototyping. I would say on average, a product could take anything between six months to a year to, to really get out the door once it's on from, you know, idea, concept, design, prototyping, manufacturing, logistics, and then into market. So that it takes a long time. Once you've got a product, then you can change the color and the slight nuances, but but it does take a while to get that initial product through the door. It's quite expensive as well. So that initial launch, photography and marketing and 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 brand relevance is stuff that you spend a lot of time on. Have you ever visited the manufacturers and whether or not it's yes or no, do you think that that's important for uh, someone that's sourcing products from a, a different country? Yeah, look, we, we we launched the company during COVID. And so we struggled to go and see our providers. So we sort of were forced to not see our manufacturing, which made the initial launch quite complicated because in an ideal world, we would have flown over, gone to sites, check the factories out and we had to do it virtually and so we were almost forced into a way of of not being able to go do it and now as i said like some of our manufacturing partners we've been working with for five years and so we've sort of gone past that initial phase of are they the right partners but it took us ages to find the right provider look at their credentials understand where who else do they work with because often they'll make similar products for other eco product vendors so you do a lot of due diligence um in the initial starting phase to work out if it's right and i would recommend that you could go see them if you can worst case scenario is if you can't go and see them spend some time communicating get some prototypes test it out make sure you feel comfortable because once the product goes through you know is live and with the consumer it's hard to pull it back right you've launched something and therefore you know if it's wrong or the wrong type it doesn't work then you, you don't want to put it into market so you've got to be very good before you launch it i see i'd like to move to jonas partners and co I imagine there's a lot of cross-pollination being CEO, coach, leadership coach. What's something that you've learned from, from your work that you've been able to apply in Jonas Partners & Co. and then vice versa? What's something that you learned from teaching others that you're able to apply in your current role? Well, just a bit of background. So when I started, when I exited corporate and I, I had Wild and Stone, I still had this great corporate network. And so the reason behind Jonas Partners is that I had people come into me saying, hey, look, could you help me launch a business? And so I was almost consulting as part of running Wild and Stone. And so over time, I then turned it into a consultancy business because I was helping people and then I turned it into a commercial venture. Now, the funny thing is, I think the most learning I've ever done as an individual is by trying to tell other people what to do. And it's the old sensei modeling, right? To be a, a teacher, you need to be an expert. And so I've learned so much about my business, about myself through helping other people and coaching individuals. And one of the biggest things that I've probably learned is is actually asking for help and asking for guidance. I'm quite an individual that likes to do things on my own. It's part of my DNA. And so actually coaching others and seeing the value that you can offer to other people, you realize in the same mode that if you if you ask other people that are experts for support, it's a whole circle of trust. So I've loved the the cross-pollination. When you say something, think, oh, you know what, you should really focus on cash flow and net profit position. You think, am I doing that today? You realize, okay, cool, let's go do some of that and bring that back into the business. And so, yeah, it's been brilliant to do both. Okay. 
And as a Virgin startup mentor, what are some common challenges that you see founders struggle with and how do you help them overcome those? Yes, a bit of background. Uh, Virgin Startups helped us launch Wild and Stone. They were part of the original group that lent us some money and gave us a bit of mentorship. And so we felt it was important to give back to the Virgin Startup Group. I'm also a Techstars Global Mentor. And so the reason I do that is because I feel like when I was a founder, you can feel really lost. And there's so much that you need to learn. And you learn the hard way, you sort of fall over, and you try to get back up. But if someone else could just navigate you through some of that complexity, it's super powerful. So so for me, I, I work with the, both groups, and I support mentors on that real startup phases. And and I just love helping people get through that initial concept phase of, of building an idea and moving a business and I call it going from startup to scale up, how to help people at initial phases. It's I've done so many different roles that I have a really general view of the world. And that really helps people who might be a specialist in product or a specialist in marketing, but not be a specialist in business, which which I feel I am. Okay. So reading between the lines of that answer, it sounds like there's no single challenge that people come and face. It's just each person comes at it differently. And and because of your generalist background, you're able to kind of adapt and, and cater your, your advice and mentorship based on each person's situation. Yeah, I think there's there's a common DNA or common theme that I think you need to take into running the business. But yeah, I think each individual has a different complexity at a different time. And so there are there are themes that are drawn, but really, because everyone's at such different stages or have different complexities or different businesses, they all have a, a real uniqueness to them. Okay. Understandable. Moving to yet another venture you're CEO of, Robert Lloyd Limited. What could you tell us about that? <laughs> so it probably comes from me uh, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 17 years old, the old Robert Kiyosaki stuff. Yeah. The reason that that form formed is I moved to the UK when I was 18 years old. I sort of said to my dad, I'm finished school now. I'm, I'm going to go to the big world and see what life's about. And he said, great, uh, where do you want to go? And, and so I ended up going to the UK and landing in London. I realized that through the idea of travel, I have British citizenship through grandparents. So mm. I arrived in London as a kid and thought, okay, this is interesting. I didn't really have any real world experience other than landing in this big country. And and what happened is I was renting and I was struggling with the concept of renting. And I said to my dad, like, why, why do people rent rather than buy your own property? And they were like, well, most people can't afford to buy a property. And I was like, okay, so if I could afford to buy a property, then I can rent it out and that's better than me paying someone's rent. And he said, yeah, great, great idea. So I saved up and when I was then 20 years old, I bought my first property. So I went off and that was my mission, buy my first property. And that's really where the concept of, of Robert Lloyd started. So Robert Lloyd is a, is a property business. What it does is it holds all the properties that I own within the UK market. It also acts as a management group for Airbnb. And so it's evolved from that concept idea. What I did is every time I had some cash, I'd buy a property and put it into that group. And now it pays me passive income and it manages the state that we own. So that's a little bit about it. And again, me being entrepreneurial, it was property is a really good vehicle for long-term wealth. And so that was where, where the business came from. Sounds like Robert Kiyosaki would be proud. Are you <laughs> mainly focusing in the UK property market or have you also uh, ventured abroad? We mainly do the UK with a lot of what we do. We do a lot of what we call buy-to-lets, right? So we purchase a property, renovate it, and then let it out. And so the business structure is, is in the UK, but we do do Airbnb management, which can be globally. And so, for example, we've got property in South Africa that we will will manage through Airbnbs. 
So, it's, so it allows us to have some global coverage, but the majority of what we do is in the UK. As always, there's tenants you need to see and buildings you need to see. So I think one one guidance I'd give people from my perspective is when you're doing some of these things, having it close to you makes it a lot easier to then manage and support. If they're all over the place, you can increase your complexity quickly, pretty quickly. Okay. Moving a little bit further back in time to your tenure at Rackspace. How long were you at Rackspace? Uh, going on 13 years at Rackspace. Wow. So you led multiple roles there. Could you share more about your experience building out business ideas across the European region and beyond? Yeah. So so I joined with really an, an operations background. My career had been in running technical teams. So I first of all joined really looking after the managed services division. And I loved it. But my core, my DNA, my North Star, if you want to call it that, was always trying to be entrepreneurial and go do new things. And so what happened is the business were like, look, there are there are other areas of the business that we need we need some support on. And so I would always try and jump at the opportunity. So before cloud was actually relevant in the world. I helped bring the cloud environment to Rackspace. We were one of the first providers in the world to launch cloud. We'd worked with NASA and created something called OpenStack. And so I'd launched our OpenStack elements within the MIA market, right? So that gave me a real taster of being able to build new capabilities for a big corporation. And that's where the sort of snowball started. And so I almost moved into what I'd call like an M&A group where we would go and look at new acquisitions or build new capabilities. And so I'd constantly be involved in any new idea or concept that needed to be done. And so some of them was building practices from scratch. So an example, I, I built our Google practice from here. So I'd be working with the global teams and launching Google as a practice where we'd look after the GCP environments and, and cloud environments for customers within the MIA region onto we acquired a company that had a government division. And so I'd understand what government was about and launch a government practice. And so it gave me a real cool insight of with a, I was almost launching startup within a business, but I had the financial support background behind me. So I had the finance team able to give me the cash required, but really the freedom to go and build new capability for businesses. And then we'd almost make ourselves redundant. So you'd build the capability and then merge it into the main org and go and do the next thing. So you almost had like a year, a year and a half shelf life for your for your own role. And then you'd go and do the next thing. And so we learned so much about business and we'd be chopping down trees in the jungle, no idea what's coming next, but be, we'd be the ones that were building the path for everyone else to follow. Sounds like quite the sandbox. How do you go about making a partnership with NASA? Oh, well, they had a massive database. So if you think about cloud, they have you have a compute component and you have a storage component. The company we had bought had a really good compute component. They were a company called SliceHost and NASA had a good data storage. And so we basically took the NASA component and the compute component and merged them together to create OpenStack. So it wasn't me who got involved in the NASA group, but it was really our leaders in the US that put the concept together and, and really got involved. But, but yeah, we had some real strong technical wizards that looked at at how to go and advance stuff. And that's sort of how that all started. So you went to multiple places, sounded like a dream where you're, you're funded, you get to test out these ideas, make yourself redundant, rinse and repeat in a sense, but not repeat because you're doing something new each time. What's one of uh, like the projects that just sticks in your mind that like that was, that was an awesome project? 
Launching Cloud was probably my favorite. Yeah. Um, the reason being is there was so much negativity to it. You know, it was something that everyone didn't believe would would work. So we were sort of complete pioneers. And there was so much naysay, you know, it's not secure. It's not scalable. You're going to get noisy neighbors. This is never going to work. Everyone wants to have their own hosting environment. Like, I mean, for a year and a half, we just had noise. This is the worst thing in the world. Like, because there was so much resistance on it. And so we had to be pretty unique. And if you think about now, I mean, you know, that was probably how many years ago? It's probably over 10 years ago when it all sort of kicked off. And you think about the world today where it's like cloud is the default compute that people use. At that time, we were pioneering something that people were against. And we were this little group that was sort of really like challenging the status quo and growing so quickly because it was such a demanding area. And that scale was crazy. I remember saying to someone, I think we interviewed like 400 people over a year and a half and we hired 150 people. It was just like the scale of it was completely crazy and doubling growth every month because these things were just in such demand and and having to order new capacity. I mean, that was like, you know, millions of pounds of hardware that we having to order and get them in, in stock. So it was just really exciting, really fun and great dynamic team that was part of it. So that's probably the highlights of of my of my past. Okay. Sounds like mixed signals where you have this rapid rate of adoption, but then also these naysayers which kind of with the benefit of hindsight seems funny but at the time how do you like how do you know to to discard the naysayers and focus on your mission i think it's it's one of my strengths and one of my weaknesses so one of the things that and this is where i've learned post post being in corporate is i'm pretty determined and minded in one direction when something happens so i i don't listen to a lot of the noise i feel very confident in what my decision is and what direction i need to go right so i filter out all the noise because my goal is to move something as quick as possible. My my thinking on it is that you only learn from action, right? So by actually doing what people say, you work out. If if they say it's wrong, well, then let me go see if it's wrong. And so really by powering through the complexity and the noise, you work out if all these things are right or wrong rather than someone says it's it's not going to work. I'd rather know that I've done it and it failed and it, okay, cool, I've tested it. Now it doesn't work. Let's go do something else. So So just learn from it all. Okay. So you played a significant role in the European, Middle East, and African Google practice at Rackspace, and even won Google Migration's Partner of the Year Award in 2018. Could you share your strategies and approaches that you implemented to achieve such a recognition? Well, the, the reason behind this is we took one of our largest dedicated customers and we moved them all onto cloud. And at the time, they were trying to globally scale and and they were struggling with the complexity of having all the dedicated environment in one location. And so it was just a perfect storm. We knew the contact very well. And so for me, I'd, I'd advised their team on the fact that this is something that's going to give them a, the, a competitive advantage. Google was the right cloud for them to use at the time. They were a retail client. And so it fit really well. They were looking at data engineering and data science on top of it. And so the combination of the storm that was this constant pressure on them scaling, the complexity of a UK environment, it just 
created this momentum where they were like, okay, we're happy to give it a go. And we were able to build multi-scalable environments, almost create like a hybrid environment for them to have a dedicated and a cloud environment where they could burst into it. It was complicated at the time, but it was basically testing an environment out. And then they moved, they said, cool, we're all in. And they moved everything off the dedicated environment into cloud. And so it was a super complex environment because it was live customers at a very growing rapid rate. And so again, super fun, but required a lot of you know process project management and focus from our group to do it in a slick way and we obviously succeeded in doing that they saved hundreds of thousands of pounds every month on hosting because they got off this dedicated environment but they got global scalability which allowed them to burst into new regions and one of their big clients was actually in the US so they they basically sell loyalty cards and so they were working with a big retailer in, in the US and um they needed to be able to scale for it. And if they couldn't scale for it, it would have it would have basically stopped them being able to go into the US market. So the whole storm just worked perfectly and we succeeded in the migration and everyone was really happy by the end of it. So they did rave reviews around us and that basically went through to Google and Google were like, you guys have done the best migration we've seen in the last year. And that was our team really helping to pioneer and deliver it. Nice. Sounds like you were a little fortunate being in the, the right place at the right time, but then also making the right decisions. So uh, making your own luck along the way. You also seem like someone who learns by doing. Are there any books that you would recommend or how do you also level up your skills in a quote unquote formal setting? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's good to do both, and that's probably again for me. I have a whole pile of books behind me, so I, I'm I'm actively reading. And it's one of my north stars is to constantly constantly improve my development. And so I am someone who likes to activate, and I have to combine it with education. So an example is I, I live in in the UK near a place called Henley, and there's an amazing business school, the Henley Business School. And so I I actively look at the different elements that they have there just to help me keep ahead of what the best practices are. So I've done one of the executive coaching courses recently, and that sort of stuff is really helpful on staying, staying on the edge. I also actively look for other coaches. So as a coach, having other coaches give you their perspective is something that when I was probably young and thought that I knew it all, I wouldn't have actively seeked. And now, now I actively look at different people and coaches to give me a perspective and challenge me. And I'd say in my old age as such, I'm now a lot slower than I probably was. I was probably more Rambo than Gambo. And, and Gambo is Gandhi and Rambo together, Gambo in the middle. I'm more Gambo now days than I think I would have been known as Rambo back in the past. Okay. Well, it sounds like a, a good progression, probably better than the other, other way around. <laughs> yeah. So what's your vision for the future, particularly in your role as leadership coach and CEO of an Echo Products company? Do you know what I was thinking? Like I have a I have a beautiful North Star for myself on on what I'm doing and it's basically made up of the four pieces. My personal life, which is around looking at family and kids and education and, and friends and family. You know, I have a property business that is my retirement fund and it just will be there until I need it. Probably be passed over to my kids. And I have two beautiful businesses, which is an eco luxe business that basically helps the planet. I think we all know the weather's crazy and we we need to be more eco-focused. So I have a business that is really scalable and is 
pretty automated and it's able to help the world. And I look at that and think it's a beautiful entity. If we sold it in the in a few years, that wouldn't bother us. That would be something we'd look at as an exit in the future, but knowing that we built this beautiful business. And then consultancy is just, for me, it's a never-ending world of helping other people and dealing with the complexity and problems that they're doing, but using my experience and guidance. So I feel like I've got this perfect model of, of, of balance of life, which is I think an evolution of what what people are searching for is this almost custom life that we're building for ourselves. And I'm fortunate I've been able to do that and have this combination of things rather than a traditional corporate role, which for me feels uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like I'm in control. Whereas these four worlds have created that perfect storm. I can choose to not work on Friday and go play golf if that works. I can go pick my kids up if needed. And I have this flowing dynamic between it all and multiple ways of of making making revenue and income and streams. So I, I love what I've built and hopefully just keep continuing to scale all of it as we go and probably automate or or delegate down is probably where I'll go in the future so that they're a little bit more self-sufficient and I don't have to do any work but just go to the beach and relax. Mm-hmm. Sounds <laughs> nice. Well done so far. My last question is what advice would you give to aspiring leaders or entrepreneurs looking to make their mark in their own respective fields? So I think the first thing is knowing yourself. I think a lot of a lot of I I would go against some of the educational systems, right? That that are traditionally put us in a certain manner. I think being a leader and being an entrepreneur, you need to understand yourself and know what your strengths are and what you're good at, right? And that also highlights what you're not good at. And so the the first part is is knowing thyself, right? And understanding where how you fit. And school doesn't help you with that in at a young age. It doesn't you don't walk out going, I'm really good at this, I'm a good leader or a good communicator or I'm good at arranging. You walk out going, I got an A, a B, a C, and I've failed French, whatever. So I think the first piece is, is know yourself. And I think the second piece is basically being really comfortable with failing. Failure is such a negative word, and I don't look at it in, in a negative light at, at all. I look at it as failure is learning. So be prepared to trip up, fall over, get back up and go again. And, and that there is how you learn. And so that's really the reality set. And and you can learn through education and books and stuff like that, but it's the theory practical, right? It's like driving a car. You can watch all the videos on how to drive a car, but really until you drive a car, you don't understand what it's all about. So it's a combination of, of learning. I would say the other thing is, is coming up with a plan. I, I meet so many people through coaching who just don't know what they're going to do. They don't have what I call as the North Star, the directional sides, and they do what we, we term as the Christmas tree, right? If, if you could think of the North Star being the, the star on the top of the Christmas tree, if you know you go into the star, you go straight. But if you don't know what you're doing, you go to the right of the Christmas tree and the left of the Christmas tree and the right of the Christmas tree, and you never really get to the top of the tree. Or if you do, it takes you forever. So just think about where you're trying to go, because I think that really, really helps with with execution, with strategic thinking, with what's it, what do you say no to? And I think that that's really important. And then probably the last piece is just seeking advice, seeking guidance. Don't fear asking for help. Don't fear asking for someone for a perspective because I think actually you might have plan A, someone else have plan B, and then when you merge them together, you just get a much better plan or thought pattern of what to do. So actively seek advice and, and criticism to help you. And I sort of, I think of those four, if, if people could take any of that away, that would be a really, really useful thing. I would try to tell myself that 20 years ago and say, just listen to these things. And that would probably have helped me loads to where I got to today. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Where can people see what you're up to? Probably the easiest, if you want to know what I'm up to, LinkedIn is a good place to see my profile and what I'm doing. Otherwise, you can go to 
jonasconsultancy.com and you can see what I'm up to there. Yeah, so that's probably the two big places I'd recommend. Okay. Well, thank you, Warren, for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Our next guest is Emma Richmond, an accomplished executive coach and Tech Canada chair who has spent over two decades fostering sustainable business growth and leadership development. She combines positive psychology, neuroscience, and mindfulness to inspire leaders and fuel their personal and professional growth in a unique coaching style. Tune in to unlock your best self. Until then, eyes on the horizon. Thank you.